Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Cool, let's just do it one more time. Why? Because we love making movies! Hey everybody, I'm Aaron Gelabolo and welcome to my podcast, Because We Love Making Movies. So today we're welcoming back film editor Brett Bachman. The first time we spoke, we talked about his whole career, including his work with SpectreVision and the new film Pig. But today I wanted to do a deep dive into a horror film he edited called The Vigil. It's written and directed by Keith Thomas, photographed by Zach Cooperstein. And it's just a wonderfully unique movie. If you haven't seen it yet, pause this and go watch it. Otherwise, welcome back, Brett. Hello. Good to be back. Thank you. Great to have you back. Thank you for doing this. So I love horror films because I, I grew up on them. Uh, you know, films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Nightmare on Elm Street, The Thing, The Exorcist. You know, I'm also a lifelong fan of Stephen King. And it's actually through Stephen King that I learned, you know, horror stories and films only work if you care about the people at the heart of them. You know, for instance, The Exorcist is about a mom trying to cure her sick kid. You know, that that's really the the crux of the film and it's it's kind of only a traditional horror film for the last you know 20 minutes but it's obviously one of the great horror films of all time and you know for me this film the vigil really turns on such a beautiful premise grounded in emotion and and also the the emotional life of, of the main character who we learn about as the story unfolds and so i guess maybe for uh uh the viewers tell us tell us what the vigil is about Oh, thanks so much, Aaron. Um, well, I think it's about grief. I think it's about finding courage. I think it's I think it's about hope. Um, the the film, the story being centered around this young man who leaves his uh, his old life behind. Um, he grows up in the Hasidic neighborhood in New York and makes a very difficult choice to leave behind his, his former community, his religion, his lifestyle, his community. And he, when people do that, they run, they, they become ostracized. Uh, they are often leaving loved ones behind, friends behind. And after a personal disaster um, happens to his family, he leaves. And through financial hardship, takes a job that requires him to enter the community for one night, uh, performing uh, the vigil, being a shomer for an evening. And those unfamiliar with the practice, like like I was, mm. um, I've been a goy for you know, 34 years. Um, <laughs> I, I was very un, unfamiliar with this entire <clears throat> practice and the stories behind it and the, the rituals. And so when someone in the Jewish community dies, um, the body is often left um, in the house overnight and the guardian a vigil sits and reads prayers. And in our movie, in our story, 
when Jakob comes back to the house, mm-hmm. uh, he discovers this entity has latched itself on to this victim and uh, forces him to confront a lot of the grief and the trauma that he's been fleeing mm-hmm. uh, from his own life um, and threatens to latch onto him as a parasite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a movie that, you know, for those of you who haven't seen it, when you, what I love about it is that, you know, it's, it starts out with this very kind of uh, mysterious opening um, that kind of, that, that we learn about what that is later, sort of set, uh, you know, you can kind of ascertain that it's set in World War II, but it, you know, from a from a filmmaking perspective, I, I love the whole the, the sense of breaths that go to fades to dark, you know, to to dark fades to black, mm. and we hear the breaths, and we understand it's someone's point of view. We don't just we don't know whose point of view it is, and it's this traumatic thing that you see, and then you come into the present and you meet Jakob, and you know he's immediately in a bathroom taking medication, and so like you said. He's this guy who's not only ostracized by his religious community, but he's also living in modern society with all of mo- with all of its modern problems. You know, he's, he's got anxiety, he's medicated, he's dealing with a lot of the things that everyone deals with on top of sort of being uh, alone now in the world, apart from his sort of community and faith. And I also, again, it, it's it's like a lot of your work, it has this really wonderful um, humanity that it starts with so that we're grounded in it. And the scene of just everybody all of these people who are sort of who are who are um, Jewish who have who have left their community to try and live in modern society, sitting around a table and talking and having this conversation yeah. that goes in in and out of Hebrew, is really is really so funny and and poignant and sad, and you really see you kind of from the one story that Jacob tells you, which is that, you know, he, he went to get, try and get a job and he didn't have a resume and he was writing it on a note paper and, and you know, immediately who this guy is and what yeah. he's dealing with, you know? And, and then he, from there, he gets approached by someone from the community to sit this vigil. And that, that guy's a wonderful actor too, who kind of plays sort of the Hasidic. He's not a, is he's not a rabbi. He, he, he's, he's much, he's much more of like a community uh, sort of figure, right? Uh, I, I don't know in, in the greater yeah. context of the story. Um, yeah, I, I actually think he is a, a rabbi, and or he was a rabbi in in real life. But yeah, that footsteps meeting, um, it, those actually happen. Um, th- these are real meetings that do occur a lot. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the film, uh, some of the actors at that table are are not actors. They're not professional actors in the sense. A lot of them are actually. Mem- former members of the Hasidic community that um, appear in the film. Um, the actress that plays Sarah was in was in the Hasidic community before she left. Wow. Um, and a lot of those other people around the table um, are directly from that community that have decided to leave. Uh, Keith, our director, based this meeting off of real meetings that do occur just like this. Um, wow. it, it ended up proving to be one of our more challenging scenes in the film, which overall was uh, the editorial process went ex- very smoothly. But this one particular scene was one of the more challenging ones to kind of na- nail these uh, all these points of view um, mm-hmm. with making sure you're, you're understanding where all th- what this community is about, where Jakob is coming from, nailing the point of view of the scene, feeling that humanity, setting the world but also doing so in a way that uh, just doesn't kind of blatantly 
come out with exposition. We're kind of trying mm-hmm. to kind of lead the audience in a little bit, kind of set the tone, set the world mm-hmm. without kind of being explicit about here's where we are, here's what's going on. We're giving them some trust that would allow them to uh, catch up with us, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so interesting that it was the most difficult scene because it it, it it's kind of it it seems like one of the most effortless scenes in the movie, and it and it and it's such a lovely, delicate, elegant scene. Uh, like I said, they they sort of like you, and you do. It's nice you do catch up because the more you get details in that scene, you're like, oh, I see, I see, I understand. Um, but let's let's back up for a second. So yeah. you mentioned Keith Thomas, the director. So how did how did you meet Keith Thomas, and how did you how did you come to edit the Vigil? Yeah. Um, so the Vigil was the very first script that my agent ever sent me. Um, wow. I was uh, after the success of Mandy. Um, I attracted the attention of um, my agent over at UTA. Uh, and after finishing a film called Daniel Isn't Real, um, mm. where I was just like doing back-to-back Spectre Vision projects, he was like, I want to get you on something else. I want to meet some more people if you're into that. Mm. And he's like, I want you to take a look at this. It's it's not a large movie, um, but it's extremely well-written. And it, I, I think you would do really well with it. Uh, and... He sent me the script. He sent me a lookbook, and the entire concept really fascinated me and hooked me. Um, mm-hmm. There's there, there was a lot of humanity to it. It was very frightening. Um, I, I I loved also kind of the mystery element of it as well, where you're gradually discovering what is going on inside of this house, um, and it, it it worked for me on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a really brief phone call with Keith where, you know, we kind of mutually, I mean, he was really familiar with my work. And um, I mean, this being Keith's first feature, he was extremely, mm-hmm. um, ex- extremely collaborative and excited to work together. And we hit it off right away. Um, I, I wrapped editorial on Daniel's Unreal. And just in a matter of, I think, a few weeks later, I was receiving dailies from New York. Wow. Wow, that's so that's so cool. And and Keith Thomas, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, uh, you know, I think he's a really great up and coming director. I mean, I, I actually saw his first his at least the short that made the rounds called Arcane. Oh yeah, which is a really scary, intense short and and has elements has sort of shades of of the vigil in it and and you know i mean it, it's a little it's a little different but i remember being so excited for this movie because i i saw it seen that short and i said wow this movie's going to be scary and and i do love the fact that the movie is a mystery you know you there's no sort of setup boogeyman setup you know you don't there's no sort of oh this is what's going to happen or this is the tale of the demon and the blah 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 so that that's really it, it, it's really fresh in that way you know particularly because of the world um and i guess so what were your sort of first uh, uh conversations with keith about in terms of you know the, the 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 script and the tone of the movie and and just how you guys were going to approach it yeah uh we talked i i think so be a very very first conversation was like i don't speak a word of Hebrew, <laughs> uh, is that going to be? Is that going to be okay? Are you sure you still want me on this? And he's like, "We'll we'll make it up as we go. You'll have the script with you. I I, I like your sensibilities. I like your tone. I like I like the stuff you worked on. Yeah. So that we had to get that out of the way like immediately. Um, right. And uh, the thing that hooked me in the script immediately, um, the thing that like really resonated with me, that kind of noodled its way into my brain, um, 
was the uh, the midpoint scene, the scene in the basement where Yakov goes downstairs. Mm. He finds the video of Mr. Litvak talking about mm-hmm. this thing that's followed him home from mm-hmm. Europe. And you're kind of caught up with the mythology um, and Yakov realizes the, the plight that he is in. Mm-hmm. There was something that was so kind of chilling about that scene, but also uh, there's a sense of dramatic irony going on where you know it's not a good idea to go down to the basement and yet you really want him to at the same time you want to figure mm. you want to find out what's going on um and i just this, that scene really just kind of stuck with me you know several days mm-hmm. after reading mm-hmm. and so there wasn't much discussion in terms of references or execution from keith and you know how i how I want you to take this, how uh-huh. I, I feel this take or that take. It was a relatively hands-off assembly process. Nice. Um, I was sent um, a big chunk of dailies over um, over in Los Angeles and they were doing production over in New York. And I kind of had free reign for about four weeks to put together this first cut. Um, and it was, for those who've seen the movie, you'll know it's a relatively small contained story. It takes place more or less in two locations with, you know, a, a travel sequence in the first act. Um, and it was a really fun opportunity to kind of sit with material for about a month, look at dailies and just kind of bring my own interpretation of the material and present it to Keith, which uh, fortunately, um, resulted in probably one of the easiest director's cuts I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> wow. I, yeah. I mean, we had most director's cuts, you know, by DGA um, timelines will go for about 10 weeks. We did the director's cut for Vigil in under two. Wow. Holy shit. Keith saw the assembly. He was extremely happy with where it was at, with the progress. He was executing on all of the things the film needed to do. It was scary. It was uh, emotional. Um, the characters work, the acting from Dave and and everybody was top notch. And so really Keith came in and he was like, I just don't have that much I want to do. Like I I have, we, we worked together for about a week and a half. Then Uh we, um, he had things here or there. We wanted to work on together, some timing things, some performances, clarify some things, rewrite some of the, uh, clarify some of the. Um, the subtitles where I just gotten the, the translations completely wrong, right. uh, which <laughs> happened. And uh, then we presented the producers, like only about two weeks after after Keith uh, traveled over from Colorado where he lives. And uh, then producers saw it and kind of the same thing, you know, extremely happy with where it was at. Um, wow. But then they wanted to start testing. And so we had like a, a small friends or family screening in a rented theater to work on some things, calibrate some uh, moments here or there. But the editorial process for this was remarkably fast, very smooth. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope I'll have another project at some point in the near future that, or in my life, that'll go as smoothly as this one did. Right. And now I'm so, so I'm curious, uh, do you think that had to do with, because it feels to me like it was a very tightly written script. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, do you think that had something to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of this movie was realized on the page uh, and obviously in the shooting, but that, that it wasn't like you were having to sort of do restructuring in the edit and, and, and it, it kind of came out as it, as it was meant to be to oh, a certain degree. No doubt. I mean, I think you, I, 
the only reason this edit wasn't smooth as a smooth as it did was because of the production team, you know, knowing exactly what they wanted and doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, down to, you know, Keith's writing to Zach's photography and you know, his mm -hmm. experience with you know, working with Keith on set to get the right coverage for the, the story beats. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the film, the movie executed all of its objectives. It was scary. It was well-written. It was compelling. So the things that, you know, you have to achieve when doing a horror movie or doing a genre movie, um, or just any movie altogether, um, it it worked I, mm -hmm. I think that was because of its small scale of its um the ability of the script um uh and it and the acting um mm -hmm. it goes without saying i mean with dave's performance in this i think was extremely nuanced and uh, mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize this was an accent for him the entire time wow <laughs> really he, yeah that's, really? A, that's a voice he he, he came up with for the film and he um a lot of times in the, in the edit you have to work around actors and you have to kind uh -huh, of uh -huh. you know, juggle uh the tone of the film with an actor's performance and getting the kind of all kind of meshed together we had none of that on this film um wow. it just wow. kind of like a like a very easy <laughs> uh puzzle just kind of slipped together more or less Wow. Wow. And, and so, I mean, that might do, there are things we calibrate and things we work on specifically in the edit, but it's just one of those situations where a lot of your first tries work, <laughs> which mm -hmm, you're like, mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's cool. That this yeah. kind of came together the way it did. No. Yeah. And that make that makes sense. I mean, cause it's such a strong film. And, and so the, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask before, you know, before we kind of get into like specific technical stuff is that, you know, when you, when you read the script, you know, what did you kind of see as, oh, okay, this is, this is an opportunity. I'm excited to do this. And what did you also see as sort of, oh, this is a pitfall. This is a place where we can really fuck it up if we, <laughs> if, oh, yeah. if we're not careful. I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, with the Mazik in particular, this creature, um, the, the, the demon, the, uh, this entity that um, is our monster, our villain throughout the film, uh, it was going to be really important to get that right, um, to get the balance, this ambiguity of the threat as well. We have this kind of uh, ongoing storyline that, you know, Miyakov is going through, like you said earlier, mm. a, a lot of mental health issues. He's going mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. panic attacks. And so juggling the ambiguity of that with also this the potential presence of this thing uh, was very important. Um, making sure we nail um, the inner character arc was also very important um, because at the end, that's what's really going to resonate mm -hmm. as a transformation arc is to see that Yaakov leaves this experience changed. And mm -hmm. so unless we can get that right with him, you know, we, we tell the story through flashbacks of how this accident occurred where his brother is, you know, killed in this you know, accident um, mm -hmm. and making sure we're able to kind of chart that trajectory of him building the courage of him being able to forgive himself throughout this mm -hmm. night mm -hmm. was very important. Um, the, the finale, I think was also something we knew had, had to work with um, the, special effects of the creature with the walls pushing in on him um with uh there's also a sequence which was one of i think the most challenging things for them to shoot which was a, a sequence about two-thirds to the film where yakov decides to leave the haunted house 
nowhere to oh, be. Yeah. He does yeah. that thing where everybody just says, well, why don't you just leave? And he does. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he discovers mm-hmm. that he has been in the house too long and this thing has latched onto him and he can't leave without, you know, he, he, he can't leave without incurring some kind of torment or some kind mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, potentially death. And this yeah, thing it's like, yeah, it's like this arthritic kind of thing where his limbs don't work and he's cracking and it's almost like he's turning into the, the like the corpse or some or or the old man or it's it's such a cool frightening effect. They were supposed exactly. They were supposed to have an entire night to shoot this sequence. They had all the <laughs> they had all the permits, they had everything set aside. They started shooting it and I think they were probably 2 hours, 3 hours in um and the NYPD shows up and they're like you're getting noise complaints. We don't care. You have a permit. You have an hour, and then we're shutting you down. Uh, so Keith, it wasn't often that like Keith called me from set to be like, "Hey, we got a thing. We got a problem." But on this particular day, he's like, "Hey, so we only were able to shoot about a third of our day. I, I only got about, you know, twenty percent of the shots that I wanted, and the other." 80% were stuff that Zach and I just had to run and gun and just shoot the material, shoot as fast as possible. So please let me know if we have something. I'm extremely concerned about it. I'm not positive we have the sequence. Wow. Uh, and so that was definitely something in terms of that, that could have been a pitfall in the edit, but you know, fortunately they, they did it. Like they, they yeah. got the right material and we got it in the can. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like I, yeah, that's, wow, that's really impressive because it doesn't seem like that at all when you watch the film, you know, I mean, it, it feels like a full journey out of the house and back, you know? Uh, uh, um, so uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, um, I guess two things that really, that really stand out to me sort of overall, you know, first is, is a little bit of a subtle thing that, you know, I love when they, kind of once you leave the sort of the, the, the meeting with the sort of excommunicate, not the, the sort of, uh, Jewish people who are outside of the community, there's this great POV shot that kind of comes, finds the rabbi and you kind of get this sense. It's the first time you hear kind of the haunting score, which is a really great score. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Really, really great. And, the camera's kind of floating towards the rabbi and you realize it's POV to a certain degree of, of Jacob and his friend. And then when they, when they finally go to the house where he's going to sit the vigil, there's this great shot that's sort of out on the street of this apartment. It's, and they're very simple, you know, apartments, but the score comes in and it almost feels like kind of those shots from sort of the beginning of the exorcist or even the beginning of hereditary, where it's almost like it's the demon's point of view, Mm -hmm. but, but it's, 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 it's really haunting and it sets up, I don't know. It, it, I don't know how you guys were approaching those shots uh, in terms of you know point of view and, and feeling and mood, but they certainly achieved this feeling of dread. Uh, and the other thing that is a sort of a bigger thing to talk about is, you know, it, it, he basically sits there for five hours in the movie. And a lot of movies, you know, have kind of this, uh, you know, a, a real time sort of you know clock ticking. And it's got a it's got a faster pace because of that because oh we're rushing through the night. This you guys do this thing here where you're elongating time because it's the sense of waiting, yeah. and the sen- and then time stretches even further because it's supernatural. And so so a lot of the shots are very long and the moments are very long. And so was that something that you guys you know was built in or and how did you approach that because it, it carries through the whole film. So mm-hmm. you know it's it's I was just curious because that seems to be really like this is the definition of slow burn you know and creating tension yeah uh i mean one of my favorite things about how the film was shot was that it does a great job at oscillating between uh 
this third person, almost omniscient point of view where you're seeing tab like wider tableau shots where you don't know whose point of view there are, or you're um, experiencing things on the flip side of that, you know, very, a uh, very limited point of view. You're only seeing what Yakov does. Mm -hmm. um, and I, one of the things I think the film does really well is when it changes between those two. So, you know, coming up, for instance, in the opening of when they're coming to Mrs. Litbox's house and you have the mm. white exterior and you're coming in and you have that dolly coming from camera left over to the right and you reveal mm -hmm. the body. There certainly is, and it is intentional to have some almost malevolent point of view to that. We mm -hmm. do want to, mm -hmm. it is intentional to kind of create this idea of someone is watching, something is, something is following them. Mm -hmm. uh, and this occurs throughout the film as well when Yakov's texting and we have you know, the camera set up in the corner of the room from far mm -hmm. away and mm -hmm. you have different elements of space that are kind of framing uh, the different rooms and that's meant to kind of invoke that yes something could theoretically it's meant to give you that idea that something could be in the back or um, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. showing how large this house is um, and you know, uh, James Wanville did this a lot, but um, and he talks about this um, when he will frame things particularly wide to kind of allow your eye to explore. Um, mm -hmm, and we, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the film Vigil, I think, definitely does something like that as well. And that's something that we consciously do um, where, uh, for instance, you know, when he's on the phone talking to Sarah and they're doing a FaceTime and he discovers that this might not be, this might, this per thing that he's talking to might not be Sarah. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we're doing most of this conversation, you know, in kind of a, a close-up pattern and a reverse, you know, close up mm -hmm. on him, insert mm -hmm. on the iPhone for Sarah, back and forth, back and forth. And then at one point in this conversation, we cut out to a wide. And mm -hmm. we just hold in that wide for a little bit too long. And that's totally, totally intentional. Like we want mm -hmm. the audience's eye to be re- purpose and now they were thinking about the conversation now we want them to think about the room we want them to think mm. about what's in the room is there something in the shadows is there something you know uh, behind the camera we want them to be suddenly thrown off guard and you know mm. put off balance so those are definitely totally intentional when we switch between those two mm -hmm. um and you know the, uh, the question of point of view is something we always have to talk about when it comes down to horror when it comes down to building dread and suspense um and that's something that i think is extremely important in pacing as well and so you mm -hmm. when you look at you know him interacting with his phone or looking at the body or him in the kitchen freaking out these scenes are you know paced very carefully because mm. i i think the most one of the most important things in horror and especially if you want to throw the audience off guard isn't what is happening but mm -hmm. what could happen like mm -hmm. what tossing out this notion this expectation that at any point something could change dramatically mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and you if you have a, a horror film or a moment that is paced in a way that is giving you the information at a a faster rate than normal, then there's no time for you to kind of build that suspense, to build that dread. You're just following story beats. Mm. You need, it's kind of like a, uh, it's just an engine you very carefully have to manufacture and work with and adjust and you know, go through versions to constantly kind of throw the audience off guard, to allow their eye to explore. Because, you know, building dread, building 
scares is 90% of making something frightening, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just, you know, I mean, as much as I love a jump scare and I love a loud bang and I love like a sting, that's only 10% of the equation. You have to have the 90% buildup and the mm, idea that mm. something is going on, something is happening, something is about to happen. And mm. that's well, camera work that's acting. But also I think pacing is such an integral part of that. Mm, mm, and it's so funny you said that about the kind of like what could happen because I think two things you guys use uh, cell phones in a very very interesting way in the movie because it, it, it's what I like about it is it's it's very much kind of Jakob's interior uh, uh, point of view to a certain degree like the first time we see him turn on music and start tech because he's met this girl at the footsteps meeting you know in the beginning of the movie yeah. who's interested in him who asks him to coffee and I love that line when he says I don't drink coffee she's like maybe tea you know like <laughs> it's like buddy <laughs> you know he's and so so when he's texting with her first before he starts texting with her he's googling how to talk to women yeah. you know and and it's such a great way to just be like oh boy this this poor guy and 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 then and then he's texting with her and he says oh I, I should stop texting and then the lights start flickering right lights start flickering and 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 we've had some some tension moments up to that and then he goes to the light bulb and he tries to like futz with it and it pops and he's in the dark and then his phone buzzes again and you're like oh it's the girl and it's not it's this video of him being watched as if the demon has a camera or is like has his phone and it's so well done man it's like it's like was it was all that that's all in the script as well i assume oh yeah i mean these progressions and i, I think one of the things the script does really well and keith was amazing at was how to thread out and how to build up and uh, how to escalate a scene with progressive events happening that will just build to a crescendo. So that particular sequence, for instance, is kind of in the long line of things within that first act that, mm. you know, throw Yakov's sense of his uh, safety off guard. And, you know, it's uh, uh, him finding the photo. It's him find it's him um, with the light bulb, uh, all building up into this vision he has mm. in the kitchen. Um, mm -hmm, at this point mm -hmm. in the story, I think he's more concerned. We kind of approach it that he's more concerned that it's not necessarily an entity, but it's mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. Litbach, you know, checking up on him, you know, mm -hmm. him, her recording him you know, as kind of like a scolding method. Because like, I saw you asleep on the job. You're not supposed, mm -hmm, to, be, mm -hmm. you're not supposed to be asleep. How rude of you. I'm going to have you fired or something. Um, yeah. But Keith does a great job at kind of laying out these respective beats that gradually turn into something much more sinister um, mm -hmm. and all that was in the script um, mm. we really have to man, uh, we, we assisted certainly in the edit but all of that was charted out really well by him the other part of this movie, apart from, you know, the scares, which are really beautifully architected, uh, is the acting and the performance. And, and obviously, we're talking about Dave Davis, who plays Jakob, who, who I didn't had no idea that was an accent, which is really impressive to the, you know, to the rabbi, to to every really all of those young characters. But then we get to Lynn Cohen, who, who you know, may she rest in peace. She's a, you know, terrific actress. I mean, I first became aware of her in Spielberg's Munich when she played Golda Meir. And she's so brilliant in that. And, and she's so wonderful in this. And so what was it like 
editing her performances and, and you know how did you approach that because she just seems like she's so unpredictable in in not not in a bad way but in a way that like she's got that kind of I don't know actor studio thing where she's going to give you something so alive every take and what was that like uh it was um it was a bit unpredictable with her and yeah working with Lynn I there was certainly an unpredictable nature to working with her and that's intentional like you're you're at the point in the movie where hopefully you're not sure whether or not this thing that Yakov is experiencing is some kind of, you know, external malevolent force, some kind of entity, or if he's going crazy or if he's, if he's experiencing a mental health breakdown and he's in a house with this old woman who lives alone, that's a widow that is, he's been told like, Oh, she has, uh, she has dementia. And so she might be seeing things as well. And so I think, Lynn does a great job of kind of channeling this, this uh, kind of dance on this razor's edge of you're not sure whether or not she is an old, old woman who is grieving that may have dementia or if she is uh, also haunted by something and she's this harbinger mm-hmm. trying to warn him out and how she fluctuates between you know, channeling uh, th- this earnest warning, but with also, you know, this, these kind of contrasting emotional levels where she could be heightened at one moment and then soft and gentle the other, you're, you're not really sure how to place her. And I think it, it's one of the magnetic things about that character that she keeps you guessing up until the very end, up until that mm. point where she gives Yakov um, that little bit of courage before Yakov has his final face down with the entity. You, you don't know where she's, you don't really know who she is, where she's coming from, if she's telling the truth. And Lynn kind of did a phenomenal job at balancing those two. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about what you just said there is that when in the kitchen, well, actually from the start, she's sort of like, no, he has to leave, right? You have to go. You have to go. You won't do. You should leave now. And then later on, she's saying, you know, you should leave. You should leave. And she's actually warning him yeah (laughs) it's not it's not i want you you think it's oh leave because he's not right or leave because oh she's this old woman who who has who might have mental illness illness issues or she's not of in her right mind but she's actually her clarity when it comes to her husband and the demon is always there Mm -hmm. and and when you go back and rewatch the movie you realize that the whole time she's telling you the truth and, 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 you know, it kind of reminds me of there's these sort of heartbreaking stories written by this author, Jonathan Franson, because his father had dementia. And he said the worst part about it was that he would sort of make no sense for long, long stretches. And then all of a sudden, he would have a moment of clarity and a memory that would just hit, hit Jonathan Franzen like a knife, you know? And, and I think she does this thing where she's balancing out. Like you said, it's like, wait a minute, is she telling the truth or not? And yeah, exactly. She's meant to kind of be that unreliable narrator type. Mm -hmm, You're, mm -hmm. you're not sure what to take from her as fact and what is manufactured. She's talking about her husband being haunted by something. Am I supposed to take this literally? Is this Mm -hmm. an allegory? Is this her kind of spinning off into something Mm -hmm. and that, and then, you know, finding moments of inspiration, finding the moment where it's an astute high energy warning, or if she's tapping into something that is extremely painful that she's been going through the last 50, 60 years of her life. Mm -hmm. Um, And she did a a really great job at oscillating between those two. 
Yeah, completely amazing. And it's also the fact that it's like, you know, I think like an intent, it's like, don't sort of play the intention. You don't want an actor to sort of play the intention like they're pretending at it. It's like, she's, she's playing every moment as if it's true. You know, it's in, and, 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 in, and in that regard, it feels like when she's saying, oh, this is not a place for children to live and I drove them away. Well, that could be that her husband was an abusive monster, not necessarily that there's a demon. You know, it all, it all, it could, it could read just as powerfully as if we're talking about something real, as if we're talking about something supernatural. I think that's where the power comes in it, you know, because it's, it's scary because it's it's true. It's emotional because it's true. It's not because she's just acting and, you know, acting in a certain way. Um, so it's a really remarkable performance. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Particularly because she's just such a talented actress. You know, she really has that. And her face is just so wonderful. You know, it's like, it's it, on camera, particularly in that role. Um, it's just, it's, it's really an, a great performance. Uh, and, I guess, you know, the, the Dave Davis performance, just, I just want to talk about a little bit because to me, it's like, it's, it's, it's such a, it has no vanity, you know, like, it's like, it's like people talk about, um, everybody talks in the Godfather about like Michael and Sonny and Marlon Brando. And they said, you know, but John Cazale's performance as Fredo is sort of the, it's the role no one would want to take, you know, because he's so he's perceived as weak and he's perceived as flawed. And he's really, he's sort of like, you know, kind of a grown up baby. And Dave really approaches, you know, a lot of, a lot of his performance from this perspective. And it, it's just got such humanity and empathy. And, and, you know, I guess talk about, you know, cutting his performances and what it was like to, to observe him, you know, create this character on screen. Cause it's really memorable. Yeah. I'm going to start with Dave. Uh, he made it look so easy. <laughs> like, and he, he made it, it was, I, I, it's, he's very gifted. He's very mm-hmm. talented. And I, it's a, it's such a joy as an editor when you look at a performance and you're working with a performance in tandem with someone who you, you never meet in real life or at least I, I hadn't met Dave at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. And every single take is great. And it is, there's no issue. There's no task. There's no, nothing to work around. And I, Sometimes you take it for granted as editors when you're looking at material and you're assembling it that so much work and practice and rehearsals have gone into crafting this performance. And I don't think I realized it until we were maybe a week away from picture lock, you know, how much work had gone into how much work David put in to bring this character to life, to learn his lines in Hebrew, to, you know, fully and capture this guy's story for one night and the, the places that he takes it. He has to have a, a very wide range of emotions for Yakov, you know, whether it is you know, channeling an inner panic attack to, you know, uh, you know trying to flirt or uh, oscillating between outright terror and grief. And, you know, sometimes doing this all within one take. Um, there's one take in particular I'm thinking of in one moment in the film where he's after he's tried to escape from the house and Mm -hmm. he's waking up and he's talking with Sarah on the phone. Uh He is startled by that. He sees a vision of the body raising up out of the linen sheet. And then he's in 
full breakdown and tears are coming out and he's at his lowest point. He's probably been in his entire life. Um, and he channels all of this within the span of just a few minutes. And I, I, I was taking a lot of that for granted in assembling that. And it's only when I look back at it now and you're like, a person had to do this. A, a man had to rehearse these things and had the ability to kind of channel all that stuff that I, I realized how much of a phenomenal actor he really is. Um, and uh, he, he brings such humanity and inability for the audience to empathize with him that you hope, you hope to have every actor as good as Dave Davis in if that makes any no. sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, 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 okay. So I wanted to kind of just get into sort of the, the, the genre of it all. Um, you know, you know, in general, I guess a, a, a kind of a, a nerdy editing question. I, I'm just curious sort of, and maybe this might not apply to this film or other films, but you know, when you're, when you're assembling, do you, um, do you prefer to, to start cutting without music and cut things silently? Or do you prefer to, to use, if you have score or temp score, and I've heard stories about Chris Nolan likes to cut the whole movie silently and just see if it's working. For, I'm just curious how you, how you work. Uh, I typically, like to avoid temp music as long as possible. Um, <laughs> it, it's uh, up until a certain point. Um, there's usually kind of a happy point after about a month of working the director that we kind of start to bring that I would like to bring stuff in because then mm. you start kind of thinking about the movie as a whole as opposed to just kind of disparate scenes. Mm-hmm, um, which mm-hmm. when you f- first start doing the assembly, it, that's all it is. It is disparate scenes. You're working on, you know, scene 47 one day, and then the next day you're working on scene 82. Then the, on Thursday, you're working on scene two. And so it's all these things kind of out of flux. And you're, mm. you'll you mm. be working on these things for hours at a time. And then you look at everything together. And just mm, the vast majority of the time, these scenes don't flow into one another. Mm. The movie has no rhythm hiccups here or there, uh, and it needs further calibration. And so one of the reasons I don't use temp music is music is, you know, a big momentum shift. It's a huge, when you use it, it can really change the rhythm of a piece. And so Mm. more often than not, when I start watching these assemblies with temp music, the rhythm of the movie would be thrown even more off. Mm -hmm. And mind Mm -hmm. you, you have, you know, score. It's also used, you know, to create scenes and the sequences to blend several mm-hmm. scenes together, to you know, emphasize something that hopefully should be working in the material. And mm-hmm. so I found that when I was using them on my earlier films, it was creating actually hindrances in the edit that if you use it too early. And it's mm-hmm. also more often than not maybe a crutch you lean on mm-hmm. to build an emotion that should be in the story, that should be in the performances that maybe you start relying on too soon. So with the vigil, particularly, I didn't use any temp music until I, I think that second week with Keith. Um, I, wow. I, I mentioned before we were this director's cut was only about two weeks before we brought in the producers to start working. So when Keith first saw this rough assembly I prepared, uh, it, it had I think the only music it it had was um, source music, the stuff that you would you know net, like if you. Yakov puts on headphones and he's listening uh-huh. to music. You know, you would hear uh-huh. that. Um, okay. But you wouldn't hear any, you know, temp or any cues, so to speak. Mm. Mm. Um, that being said, I do use a lot of sound. Um, right. I, I, was, I was just, okay, I was just about to ask you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 
when I do my rough assemblies, I spend a lot of time creating a sound bed. Um, you know, whether that's through ambiences and backgrounds um, or a combination of um, Foley or hard, not like a full Foley pass, mind you, but you know, whether it's hard effects. I, mm. I like to create, when we talk about mood and ambience and dread, sound is at least 50% of that. And mm -hmm. so as much as I don't like to, you know, utilize music because of its ways it can throw off rhythm or it can be mm -hmm. a bit uh, driving with a tone, I, I think working with sound as early as possible is the flip side of that, where I will mm -hmm. do that on my very first scenes, my very first cut of scenes. Um, typically I find, and when the director comes on board then, usually you're working on things kind of like a, a scene by scene basis with the director. So mm -hmm. when Keith came on board and we started working on his director's cut, we would kind of go in a linear fashion, working on the prologue, working on the footsteps meeting and kind of mm -hmm. doing a scene at a time on the individual notes. And even then music really isn't good to use because you're still kind of adjusting things on a micro basis. You're not mm -hmm. doing the full thing, mm -hmm. the, the full film as a whole. Mm -hmm. I usually find there's a point where after you do that first full director's pass, and you're now you've gone through every single scene you've done the, that first round of the director's notes then you watch the movie down and that's kind of what i envision as like the first rough director's cut and mm -hmm. usually mm -hmm. on a film that takes anywhere from uh, two to three weeks to get to that point but with mm -hmm. keith because he had very little notes we were able to get there in one week mm -hmm. now is the time okay let's think of this thing as a movie as opposed to a bunch of individual scenes we're making notes on and mm -hmm. one of the big things we do at this point is start to talk about music start to talk mm -hmm. about how do you want mm -hmm. to feel how does where can it help the film where do we need it where do we not want to have it is also i think where to use music where not to use music is just as important where to use music mm -hmm. you, you don't mm -hmm. want to use it in a place that would be overly sentimental or leading or um you want it to, to be used in a way that uh, helps and not in a way that it's doing 90% of the work, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So we have all those conversations and that's when on a film like Vigil, for instance, we brought in, um, Keith wanted a really kind of eclectic blend of electronic and strings. And so I remember we tempted with a lot of Annihilation, for instance. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, I think like most horror films in the last 10 years, we also tempted with Under the Skin. Um, we, <laughs> uh, we, we did, we, we kind of ran a, a big gamut of a lot of electronic and a lot of um, uh, more traditional strings. Um, and we spent a few days kind of layering stuff in, trying some things out um, before you know, bringing on Michael, who takes it to an entirely different level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very it's very reminiscent of the Wendy Carlos stuff from The Shining, yeah. um, you know, which which I know was kind of one of the first synth scores before people even really now it's a total thing, you know, I mean, uh, uh, but that's that's so interesting. I mean, I think it's and from the perspective of, of of, you know, where does music go and where doesn't it go? I mean, I remember in some of my early short films, I would get obsessed with listening to scores, you know, and but but then I realized I was just listening to the score and not watching the movie and seeing where it actually went sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like 
you can you can get so carried away with music because it's so emotional. You know, like you said, it's this instant salve for something that's not working sometimes, and it's so easy to just you know because it, it, it's it's a it's it's wonderful. It can elevate anything, you know, and and but in, in, should it right is the question. Exactly. Uh, you don't want to be working on a scene and then fall in love with something and then realize ninety percent of why you liked it was because you had. Mm-hmm. Inception underneath, or you had a temp, right. temp from It Follows or something. That was that's what was working as opposed to your story. Right, exactly. And I think it's so funny too because I, I, I it's refreshing to hear you say that you avoid temp music because I think I really think it's such a, I think it's a super disservice to composers first of all. But I also think it, it again it, it can be this crutch because it's like people fall in love with temp and they say, oh, can it just sound like that? It's like, well, that's John Williams. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like this, this, this person we hired is going to give us their original thing, you know. Yeah. And so I always, I always love those stories about filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson and Greta Gerwig, who you know they have John Bryan. And those people on and in, you know, in prep, you know, so that if there is any music, it's their music, you know, which which is of the of the spirit of the film. It's kind of a necessary evil. Like <laughs> it's the, been the way I've been describing it. I mean, some and it really varies between composers, you know, their opinions on it. You know, when we first sent um, our roughs rough scenes to, you know, Johan, he stipulated, please don't include any temp music. Um, mm. I want to view this thing cold. And we always, I always try and give that option to composers. If, if I have the ability to put that forward to the producer and the director, hey, should mm-hmm. so-and-so view this without temp? And I think most appreciate that. But I, I've also found that a lot of them really like having temp in there to kind of get, to mm. have the initiating point of that conversation of where do you view things structurally? Mm-hmm. You know, so, and, and it can be mm-hmm. helpful as a communication tool to kind of clarify what you're meaning. So like mm-hmm. on Color Out of Space, for instance, we have had, um, we, we proposed something similar to Colin, Colin Sessner, composer, mm-hmm, where, mm-hmm. you know, we, we gave, we did a full spotting session with him. We kind of talked about where we want individual cues and we sent him, I think, reels without temp in them. And then when we got to a point where we're really trying to drop dial stuff in, in the last like half an hour of the movie and you know, it, the stuff wasn't those very initial passes, we would, we're hoping for maybe a cue here, a cue here, a cue here. And he's like, well, go ahead and temp it. Go ahead and you know tr- put stuff in so I get a sense of like what you're thinking about. Mm. And so you know we spent a day then working in some of uh, Marco Beltrami's score and, and also some of Colin's stuff from Hereditary to mm. work mm. in you know kind of how we viewed the sequence could crescendo where it would drop. What what does the music do from in terms of a to support the narrative going on as mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. first conversation. And then we give that the call and then he's like, Oh, okay. I see where you're like wanting to accelerate, decompress, ramp up, um, hold all mm-hmm. that stuff. And he's like, I got mm-hmm. you. No problem. Let me, let me crank out a version of that for you. Um, but, uh, you know, some composers also completely paid it and they don't want any kind of, uh, they want to view things completely cold and like mm-hmm, any artist mm-hmm. and like any, you have to be uh, kind of gadget on a, case by case basis. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very, very true. Um, and, uh, uh, thank you. That, that was, that was awesome. Uh, so I, I'm just curious, did you guys talk about, <clears throat> you know, did you talk about any horror movies? Did you reference, I mean, you said, you said no, in the, that he, that he sort of didn't give you any sort of hard and fast references, but cause I'm also curious, you know, what, are you a fan of horror movies? You know, what were, what were sort of some of the movies either growing up or, or, or lately that you, that you sort of, 
make you say, oh, this horror can do something different. I'm just curious if you're a fan of the genre and, and if you guys did have any discussions about horror movies when you were getting ready to make this movie. Uh, growing up, I was not a fan of horror movies at all. <laughs> like I, I, I didn't like the sensation of being scared growing up. I, I really liked sci-fi. I, I loved, um, I, I was always a big fan of fantasy and science fiction, but I never, I, I never liked the experience of being scared, but I was always yeah. fascinated by things paranormal. Like I was the kind mm. of kid that would go to the library and check out as many books as he could on aliens and ufos and ghosts mm -hmm. but and read them in the safe of my own home but i i was so easily scared that i didn't like the experience of watching these things so like mm -hmm, you know in mm -hmm. the growing up in the 90s you know slasher movies were everywhere and i could not have you could not have dragged me to go see one of these things in theaters mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. i think the, the thing that changed everything for me though um and it didn't happen until i was you know in my 20s you know until i was actually at AFI and I had I, I was a Sam Raimi fan like although as much as I said I didn't like horror I would watch the occasional one so like I knew of Evil Dead and I, I certainly <laughs> I appreciated it and I found oh, it yeah. you know, a bit more kind of splatter not necessarily scary so much but you know more fun mm -hmm. um, and I had heard really good things about Drag Me to Hell and so I uh, rented it brought it home watched it on my laptop in my sparse Los Feliz apartment and really enjoyed it. Had a lot of fun up until the very ending. And with the pits of hell being opened up and her being grabbed <laughs> on by a demon and being dra dragged down and the movie ending on her screaming, help me. Oh my God, help me. as like her flesh is being burned away and you cut Justin Long's crying face and just like directed by Sam Raimi. <laughs> um, like that, what the fuck ending? And like the nihilistic quality of the entire thing. Like this thing, like all of this was for naught. Nothing matters. We're all just going to die. We're all fucked. Like there was something so startling and frightening and different mm. about that ending that really screwed with me. Like I mm. couldn't forget it for like four or five days after I just kept on thinking about it and it, it haunted me I mean, yeah. to use the term. And it, that was really the first point I saw. I, I saw myself okay, let's open this door a little bit. If, if something has this power on me, mm -hmm. I kind of like that something could do this, that something mm -hmm. could really mm -hmm. make me think this hard about something. Um, and so that was kind of the genesis where I, I gradually began to kind of open myself back up to this entire genre that I had kind mm -hmm. of written off as something that I just wasn't interested in. Right. Um, and then it was throughout the next few years of you know watching a lot of different films, at AFI, but also kind of in conjunction at the same time where I met the folks from SpectreVision and began mm -hmm. to kind of work a lot in the genre space, did I begin to see what horror films in particular could do, mm -hmm. what stories they could tell, what themes they could carry, and if they're done well, that frightening, resonating power uh, mm -hmm. they can have. Mm -hmm. um, and that to that day, I think that's why I really like things in the horror world, in the horror space. And don't get me wrong, as much as I love a fun, scary ride, I mean, horror comedies, I, I, I quite frankly have so much fun experiencing, watching mm -hmm. and working on. Um, but seeing a good 
frightening, shake you to your bones, walk out of the theater feeling like you had a transformative experience mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. I think you ask most people who get in the movies and they get into making these things and they, they want to work on something that gives people uh, that kind of experience, that kind of transformative, mm-hmm. oh my God, I feel shaken, different, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like something's kind of rewired in my brain. And I think mm-hmm. horror has such a fascinating way of doing that. Oh, at least yeah. the good ones, the great ones do. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I remember that that the feeling of watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre and and thinking to myself, is this a documentary? Uh, you know, is it real? Is this happening? But yet, it has so it has all these really wonderful cinematic touches. And then at the end, even though she escapes, you can tell she's crazy and she's going to be affected for the rest of her life. You know, or movies like like I mean, honestly, in the last you know ten years, I mean, you know, The Witch and Hereditary. Mm-hmm. are just both movies that you just finish and you go wow i mean this is this is totally unique you know or or even a movie like raw i don't know if you've ever seen that movie uh, I uh it's I've, yeah I've it's yeah, and she and she's a French. Uh, uh, she just actually won the Palme d'Or for her new film, uh, t- which I, which I it's called Titane, I think, or Titane, or anyway. Raw is another one of those movies where it has one of the best endings in terms of bringing everything together, so that you just like you said, you're shook, you know, and so you're thinking about it. And I I think I love that about you know genre in general is that it really what it's trying to do is provoke you to think about something, you know, um, um, which the Vigil certainly does. Like that's one of the cool things about this movie that I, I really think everybody should go and experience because it deals with things like faith and hope and 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 our and our existence in such a sly way that when it ends you know you it, it's it's you know as as many as horror films can be bleak and hopeless this is not one of those films you know i always tell you know i try to always tell people it's like it's it's kind of nice when a movie that puts you through the ringer and you leave with a feeling of hope you know is it, it's it's really interesting that it can do that you know which this film definitely does mm-hmm. um uh, and I guess the, uh, uh, you know, kind of maybe just a fun, a fun question to ask is like, is there a horror movie that, that you wish you'd, ed- you'd have edited? <laughs> it can be a classic <laughs> I wish or not. I, I wish yeah. I have edited. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> I've never even thought about that question before. Um, I, I will say this. I, I, I don't think a film, I don't think there's a film that channels the ability of inter- entertainment value with like with the story of an adventure and fun and is scary and is like, you know, changing as Jaws is. Oh, yeah. Like that Jaws has everything you could want in a film. It's an, an, an a horror film. It's, it is. Yeah. It's an adventure film. It's a horror film. It's a comedy. It is. Uh, it, it, it channels so much in such a short span of time. And also, it, it it it's a film that changed so much about mm. how we look at, for better and for worse, about the entire film business. Um, I, I don't know if it gets, I, I don't know if you could do a, a film like that could be made again. I I, I would hope so. I believe in, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I believe in our movies. But I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. It, it channels everything. Everything I I love about horror films, everything I just love about movies in general to go see. Entertaining character. Mm-hmm well-written characters, really well-executed story, uh, perfectly paced. Um, it handles its scares in a very tactful, um, not 
and not in a bleak or obvious way. Mm-hmm, um, it mm-hmm. gets under your skin. Uh, a, 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 a very effective and minimalistic score, but also very lush and beautiful when it when mm-hmm. it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the film just has everything. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well said. That's <laughs> I concur. I concur. Mm-hmm.